Я за Путина. Over and over again, she's saying, I support Putin, in spite of being shown photographic evidence of atrocities by Russian troops in Ukraine. I'm not even going to look at any photographs, she says. I support Putin in everything. Here's what Russia's upside-down media world is like. They claim the train station missile strike in eastern Ukraine was committed by Ukraine, despite all evidence to the contrary. Russians who get their truth from the state media are living in an alternate reality. Essentially, journalism has been banned now in Russia. They deny, they deflect. The Russian army is portrayed as triumphant, as not sustaining any losses, any casualties, and is certainly not committing any atrocities. It's no surprise that so many people are just following along with the Kremlin's lines. It's the easiest thing for them to do. Why are the majority of Russians happy to go along with the Kremlin's line over what it calls the special military operation in Ukraine? I'm Alexia Russell, and today on The Detail, a look at the culture of fear and power ingrained over centuries that's led to the way modern Russians think and the impact of what one commentator calls a triumph of disinformation with deadly consequences. And if you think it hasn't reached us here... Russian propaganda distorting the truth about the war in Ukraine is making its way all around the world to New Zealand. One News has discovered a Vladimir Putin fan club operating with Kiwis voicing their support for the Russian leader. A series of propaganda posts by the Russian embassy in New Zealand justifying the war in Ukraine has reignited calls to cut off diplomatic ties. The embassy has repeated discredited claims from the Kremlin, including that the Ukrainian government is developing biological weapons and has launched attacks on hospitals. Now, there's propaganda and fake news on both sides of this conflict, but in Russia, access to outside news sources has been severely curtailed. That doesn't really fully explain, though, why the majority of Russians are willing to back the actions of their president without question. It's historically predetermined, it's socially conditioned, and it's also psychologically more comfortable That's Associate Professor Evgeny Pavlov from Canterbury University, and we'll be talking to him soon about the culture that allows Putin to carry on the way he is. But first, Onart Isik is an Otago University student doing his PhD on how Russia's history influences its foreign policy. He says the Russian perception of threat is based on fear, which traces back to the 9th century when Russia's unprotected borders were being fortified against the Mongolians and Vikings. Geographically, Russia is vulnerable to invasion. The threat is always there. That meant internal unity was important, and to quell any potential threats from within the borders, an autocracy was established. It's a system of governance where unrestrained power lies in the hands of one person, whether it's a czar, a communist dictator, or a president with an iron grip on power. Underneath this strong layer, you have the leaders in a circle, which are the oligarchs. Um, Even though they're not really directly involved with politics, they are the main economic power of the ruling regime. And next to that, you have the Russian Orthodox Church, The role that Russian Orthodox Church carries is more profound than oligarchs, of course. So when you say the oligarchs, and that is also, um, say, in the case of the czars, the princes and princesses, so there was always this layer of of a second layer of support around the leader, like an inner circle? 
Okay. okay, underneath this layer, the church and the uh, oligarchs, what do we have next? What we have next is Russia's well, constitution, well, currently today is just constitutional authoritarianism. Um, we have the regime's institutions that define the form of consciousness amongst the, amongst the people, ordinary citizens. So they carry out the, the dogma, if you like, of those above them for those below them. Yes, absolutely, yeah. So they impose the interest, uh, the security interest of the political elite um, amongst the people. They distribute down in education institutions through Ministry of Culture and Assault. And then at last we have the people. Yeah, in the beat we have the people, yes. This structure ruled in the Russian Empire until, after more than 300 years of Romanov rule, revolutionaries overthrew the Tsar and in 1917 Nicholas II abdicated the throne. Then communism, but still an authoritarian style of leadership. Joseph Stalin became a dictator by the 1930s. The inventor of the Gulag slave camps was notorious in the West, but the Soviet press described him as great and beloved. With Mikhail Gorbachev, however, the Soviet stronghold unravelled and in the 1990s the USSR fell and Russia transitioned to democracy. You saw the rise of um, this oligarchs um, coming out and, um, and of course we can argue to what extent it is questioned to what extent Russia really was a democracy back then because the produced constitution gave um, profound roles, uh, sweeping rights to the president. And people think that it wasn't done properly and um, they, yeah, they fear that. They fear that exper- experiment that was done in the 1990s. Yeah. But also in the 90s, we saw food queues, we economic depression. Um, absolutely. It, it wasn't the utopia that people might have thought. No, no, absolutely not. So why don't the people rise up? The people that work in the institutions, they fear to challenge the ruling elite. Um, because if you ch- it's typical in authoritarian regimes, really, once you challenge the um, ruling power, you're either imprisoned or you're threatened with your own life. But the second option, that they actually do believe this. They think a strong centralised authority really keeps the Russian borders intact um, and while keeping Russia's great power status abroad. Because for them, the Western threat really exists within Russia. And of course, this this is not a, just a product of the Putin regime, as we've discussed. It's more structural. It, it was embedded deeply in Russian culture structure through written documents, all the way to the statues that were placed out in the streets that reflected certain certain values. So there's a big payoff here. The payoff for an authoritarian regime and perhaps a curb on behaviour is that supposedly this regime is keeping Russia safe and its borders intact and, and staving off the threat of attack from the West. Yes, yes, that is correct, yeah. Especially, I mean, these people normally are the ones that experience the post-Soviet space and they fear that Russia would go back to those time periods. Of course, this is quite different when you look at the younger generation, um, especially between the age group 18 to 24, they demand a more representative system. And as you know, after the invasion, illegal invasion in Ukraine, they went out in the streets protesting against Putin's decisions. Um, however, the majority of the people, and we're talking about 60 to 70 percent here, they prefer stability more, de- more than democracy because they think that trying the alternatives endangers Russia's um, stability.
A recent independent poll found that Russian President Vladimir Putin has an 83% approval rating and that 81% of Russians support the war in Ukraine. Now, it's fair to question whether the numbers are really that high, but most experts agree that a majority of Russians support both Putin and this war. We wanted to understand how that could possibly be. And what we learned is that Russians have been fed a steady diet of propaganda for years that has laid the groundwork for them to believe their government's lies about the war. The other thing is control of information. You were talking about younger people being the ones most likely to protest. I guess there has been a Western um, wedge in there, hasn't there? The Starbucks, the McDonald's, the internet, the freedom of information that goes across the World Wide Web, something yep. that older people may not have access to. Yes, absolutely, especially um, that is why Vladimir Putin decided to shut off um, Instagram and Facebook, all these social platforms, social media um, platforms, but they're using Telegram, for example, the younger generation to to spread and share information um, in regards to what's happening concerning um, Ukraine, whereas the older generation, they tend to get the information from state media. What is the prevalence of state media in Russia? Is there any free media that has not been shut down? No, looking at the big media uh, platforms, it, it is difficult to say that they're free from government control. Um, even the regional ones, small media platforms, they they uh, they face massive um, repression. I guess those young people too, the university educated, a lot of them speak English. Yes, that that is correct. They are more connected with the world. And is that a problem for Putin? Yeah, it definitely is um, for any authoritarian regimes out there um, because it is easy for the younger generation to receive and reach out for information um, in, in our world. And people, what, what they want is a more representative system. And when the younger generation already see the alternatives, uh, when they look at the Western states, for example, um, it is quite, uh, yeah, they demand the same thing for Russia in, in Russia. Evgeny Pavlov is the Head of Department of Global, Cultural and Language Studies at Canterbury University. Authority and a strong hand being the right thing and something that you can't question is in the psyche of the Russian people, although of course not all of them. And Putin played on that uh, very gradually. Now, with hindsight, you can you can sort of see how, um, how he was always on the path toward to where we are now. And uh, this was not deliberate, I'm sure, uh, at the beginning, but he steadily but surely went down that road, taking small steps to eliminate this thing and that, uh, eventually arriving at the sort of political system where he is completely beyond any uh, criticism, where he cannot be removed, where there are no mechanisms for his removal. I mean, well, on paper there are, but there aren't really. I'll start with with the 90s is, is where Russia did experience um, democracy, right? Which was very flawed, of course, in many ways, because it was um, an experiment that hadn't been tried before. <laughs> Transition from communism on such a massive scale to capitalism pretty much overnight uh, through shock therapy, and that's what Yeltsin chose. Uh, with hindsight, this probably wasn't the best solution. Well, in, in that it didn't give... Russians the equivalent to what the Western democracy was that, you know, it meant for them food shortages and that kind of thing. 
Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it, politically, it was, for all intents and purposes, a Western-type democracy because you know there were, polit- there were genuine political parties. There were you know differences uh, of agendas. There were uh, genuine elections that weren't rigged. But there was also the shock therapy reforms that impoverished the bulk of the population and made very few fabulously rich. And there was the um, collapse of various social institutions, safety nets, and and so on and so forth, and you know explosion in crime, and uh, also the Russian Federation kind of disintegrating with regions beginning to drift apart. And then, of course, was the Chechen war that Yeltsin unleashed, and that particular war wasn't very popular at all in Russia because there was free press, uh, and the press in Russia at that time was uh, probably freer than anywhere. <laughs> Because um, there were no, uh, well, hardly any laws, you know, governing what could and could not be said in the media, and um, and the media, of course, was also manipulated by various economic interests. But but it was free press, uh, essentially. You know, anyone could say anything. Um, and so when Putin came in, he he started to establish a an order. So the, the, his his agenda, and, and he was, I mean, he wasn't doing it himself. Uh, he wasn't doing it on his own. He had a huge team of uh, political technologists uh, and strategists, you know, some incredibly smart people who uh, saw what was missing, what was lacking, and um, sensed that the population was now nostalgic for some Soviet certainties, such as, again, safety nets, uh, such as the sense of pride, which by the end of the uh, 90s was non-existent because, you know, the Soviet Union fell apart, all the, um, um, you know, everything that the Soviet people took pride in as being a uh, superpower, second to none, uh, that all disintegrated um, and um, Russia became very weak. So there was uh, demand for uh, for prestige, nostalgia for that, um, and Putin responded very clinically to each of these uh, each of these things. And it also very it helped very much, of course, that the uh, oil prices were extremely high. So he reined in the oligarchs, he uh, improved tax collection, putting more and more money in the budget, and that started trickling down to the um, general population. The standards of living uh, went up. Uh, salaries started to get paid, uh, you know, the huge backlogs of salaries that weren't paid and pensions even. And uh, so that was that all got normalized. Um, he reigned in the, well, he reigned in Chechnya, of course, with the Second War. And uh, gradually he also started to uh, respond to this, again, loss of loss of prestige demand. Putin put economic pressure on Ukraine and brought to power his protege there in 2004. He responded with tanks to back Georgia's breakaway Republic of South Ossetia in a short war in 2008 that the West didn't do much about. On this occasion, the war was referred to as a peace enforcement operation. He brought back various Soviet symbols, such as the music of the anthem, with different words, remnants of when the Soviet Union was powerful and mighty and had to be respected. He also dealt with crime, with street crime, with mafia, by um, you know putting a lot of money into um, the uh, internal ministry, into the police, and so on. Um, and that's quite handy later on when you really want to um, stamp, well, down, yes. stamp down the old <laughs> protest, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And and of course there was different kind of corruption that was going on, but it wasn't the chaotic kind of free for all corruption of the nineties, but much more orderly type of corruption that is. Con- controlled directly by Putin and um, and his inner circle. 
Evgeny Pavlov says the question of why the people have so much faith in Putin, however, has much deeper roots. In Russia, there was never a tradition of questioning authority because the Tsar, before the revolution, the Tsar was in the eyes of the peasants, and peasants made up the bulk of the population, um, the 19th century still up to 90% of them, they saw the Tsar as the little father, that was the term, Tsaibatushka, which is, means little father. So the big father is in heaven, and there's the little father who's on earth, right, who is equally infallible. So, so the blame was never placed on the Tsar up until the very last one. Nicholas II was the, the first and only Tsar who personally bore the blame for the atrocities that he committed in 1905. But before that, the Tsar was infallible, and the peasants, of course, suffered hor- uh, horribly. They were, uh, they were enslaved, pretty much enslaved. The living standards were abysmal, uh, and they often revolted, but they revolted against the landlords. They revolted, revolted against uh, some local officials. Uh, the Tsar was always infallible. The Tsar was always far away, uh, and the Tsar had that ultimate kind of justice, so they always petitioned him, and the Tsar could never do anything wrong. <laughs> In the 1920s, there was still some difference of opinion and some inner party democracy was allowed. But when Stalin comes to power, it's it's a pyramid. So he's on top. Again, he's, um, he's infallible. He's the father of nations. So the responsibility only goes from the top down, never the other way. The leader never has to um, account for his actions. Uh, and that was... Uh, and that was the system that people grew up with uh, in the Soviet Union. And that is what we're seeing now. And this is why um, uh, the older people uh, support Putin to such a degree, because they, um, particularly since uh, since the takeover of Crimea in 2014, he is seen as um, as the sort of leader who could not do anything wrong. And the media have a lot to do with that too, of course, because the media are fully controlled by the Kremlin. And now even more so, now even the uh, two or three independent outlets, um, there was a one radio station that was oppositional to, to a degree, but uh, that was closed down uh, after the start of the war. And, and the other the other media stopped broadcasting uh, for the fear of uh, getting prosecuted for calling the war the war. For those watching television news in Russia, there is no war in Ukraine, only a special military operation designed to root out Nazis. And it's all going according to plan. Those pictures of bombed out cities? The Ukrainians did it to themselves, Russian state media insists. It sounds bizarre to Western ears, but experts say many, if not most, Russians believe it. It's quite terrifying the effect that this propaganda is having on ordinary Russians. Alexei Kovalev is an award-winning Russian investigative reporter at Medusa, a Russian independent news site. He left Moscow in early March as Vladimir Putin's government cracked down on the few remaining voices of dissent. So what happens when all this fake news versus Russian mothers who understand that their children are being killed in Ukraine and the, the army children, you know, when the warship was sunk... Sinking of the Russian warship Moskva is an enormous loss and a giant embarrassment for Russia's military. Moskva was the flagship of Russia's Black Sea fleet. Russia claims it sank as the result of an onboard fire, but U.S. officials now say they believe definitively that Ukrainian missiles, two of them, sank the ship. And the number mm-hmm. of parents of people who were just cooks or something on that boat. Um, mm-hmm. What happens when they start speaking up? These are the older generation. These are people who are starting now to question. Is that going to make a difference or will they be shut down? They are being shut down already. Uh, I mean, not um, by repressions, but um, by various other means, uh, gently so far. 
Uh, but the thing is that the extent of the of the losses is not yet fully known. Um, and I'm talking about the military military losses. Um, and perhaps it will never be because not a lot of those bodies are coming home. A lot of them are still stored in Ukraine. Some reports that you know quite a few of them have been cremated. It's anyone's guess uh, how many. Well, there are some estimates which are fairly accurate, um, I suppose, but we can't know for sure. I think there w- there is a potential for that. I think I think there is a potential for that. Uh, but I'm afraid that even some of the uh, of the mothers and fathers whose children died in this war um, in the battlefield would be um, viewing this as as worthy sacrifice. Putin bought this stability, and they argued that they walk in the streets freely without being threatened or without without being robbed. And they think that prosperity, um, that little economic prosperity that Putin bought was actually sustainable. And they think that no other political leader can afford them a decent life like that. That's it for today. I'm Alexia Russell. The detail is public interest journalism funded through NZ On Air and produced by Newsroom for RNZ. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. Today's episode was engineered by Rangi Powick, produced by Sarah Robson, and thanks to Evgeny Pavlov and Onart Isik. Mate wa. Well.